And thank you for reading that difficult topic, uh, that difficult passage. Uh, this morning we are tackling a difficult topic. Um, I sent my notes to all of our TCC staff just to kind of get some thoughts on everything before preaching this morning. And one of the staff replied that the amount of times I say sex and sexuality made me blush a little bit. So um, <laughs> fair warning to you this morning. Um, if you feel uncomfortable, Jenna can use lots of help upstairs, I'm sure. Um, but let's dive in. Let's pray together. Yeah, Father God, we thank you that your spirit is here with us and abiding within us. Lord, and as we continue in this journey of examining sin in our lives, examining those things that might trip us up, that might cause us to become less rather than more in you, uh, Lord, we just invite your spirit to, to speak and to move on our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a commercial that I absolutely love is of one of a, um, a young woman and her older father do, working in the kitchen together. And while they're working, you know, the young woman's standing over a stove and the, the father's cutting vegetables at the counter. And she says, hey, dad, how did you like the iPad that me and my siblings got for you for your birthday? He goes, oh, yeah, it's good. It's good. And she follows up with another question. Well, have you had any issues with it? Are the apps working correctly and everything? And, and at this moment, as viewers of the commercial, we're clued into the fact that the dad is using the iPad as a cutting board. And he picks it up, he walks over to the oven, and he scrapes with a knife the vegetables off the iPod into the pot, and he says, what's an app? And he carries on to go over to the sink. He rinses off the iPad with water, and he throws it in the dishwasher, uh, closes the dishwasher. His, his daughter looks at him horrified, and he says, what? He had this iPad, but was not using it for its purpose. Have you ever used something in a way that it wasn't designed to be used? I remember living in Three Hills, and my wife and I had this big bush in front of our house that I wanted to get rid of, and I trimmed it right down to nothing, and then I took some ordinary strap ties, and I hooked them to the back of my Nissan Versa, right? My little hatchback, and I tried to pull the roots of this tree up, and it didn't work. The strap ties broke. I ruined my lawn with my tire tracks, so that didn't go so well. Or last Sunday night when I was playing hockey with some friends from church, we're playing hockey on Sunday. I don't have any hockey equipment. I'm new to this. And so someone said, well, you need shin guards. I was like, well, I have soccer shin guards. So I put on my soccer shin guards, and I was told that soccer shin guards are not like hockey shin guards. And sure enough, these things may work. I eventually got the root out of the ground. I survived hockey with not too many bruises. It may get the job done, but in each case, or in the case of this older gentleman and his iPad, he was missing out on a whole lot. Things are designed for a certain purpose. Products are designed with very specific parameters and capabilities, and manufacturers know how the limitations as well as the best conditions um, are re which are required for a product to thrive. Well, you and I have been created by God. And I believe that in God creating us, he knows how you and I are to get the most out of life without blowing it. God knows how he designed us. He knows what parameters that we will thrive within. When we seek out and desire life abundantly, it's God our maker, our creator, our designer, who knows how we're actually supposed to realize that. He knows how we're supposed to get from point A to point B without blowing ourselves up in life. So when it comes to a topic like sex and sexuality, it's important for us to turn our attention to our creator and ask the question, 
Lord, what are the parameters that I'm supposed to live in? How am I supposed to thrive as a human being in the context of sex and sexuality? Because when we look at what's going on in our world, it seems like ignoring our Creator, ignoring His Word, ignoring what what the Scripture says about sex and sexuality has gotten a lot of people into a lot of trouble. So this morning we're going to be talking about the vice of lust. Now the word lust could be understood simply as a strong desire like the lust for power, the lust for money. Last week Norb said I might lust over sermon writing. I don't think I've ever done that before. But um, in the earliest teaching on the vices, uh, this vice was referred to as pornea, which of course we get our English world word pornography from. Sorry, Jack, I don't have my, I'm not even using my prompt, so you can go ahead. There we go. Uh, Pornea, which is commonly translated in our Bibles as sexual immorality. This word pornea was kind of a junk drawer phrase in the Greek. And when Paul used this word or Jesus used this word, um, they were referring to any and all forms of prohibited sexual activity. So this would be um, having friends with benefits. Things like oral sex, casual sex, sex outside of marriage, adultery, and prostitution to porn, watching raunchy movies or adult films, all of it was a form of pornea. The vice that we will be exploring this morning is the desire that drives us towards sexual activity that we were never designed for. Lust. So what is so bad about lust? Well, before we talk about the vice of lust itself, we need to remember that there is a very good and beautiful and right side of sex and sexuality. And we often don't talk about that side in church, but I want to begin there with us, uh, for us this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the beginning of your Bible, Genesis uh, chapter 1. God created us as sexual beings, capable of feeling attraction and arousal. Our bodies and their sexual functions are a gift from God. From the perspective of biology alone, we see that God created sex with the capacity to bring us pleasure. But God didn't simply create us with that capacity and abandon us to figure that out on our own. But God also created a place for this pleasure to be rightly experienced. What's that place we experience the pleasure? Well, it's in the context of marriage. And we read in Scripture, we see this really neat progression. Chapter 1, verse 27 of Genesis, we read that God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So we see God making humanity. We flip over into chapter 2 and look at verse 18, where God looks at Adam and he says, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Then we read about the creation of Eve, and in verse 23 of chapter 2, scholars believe that this is a song that that Adam maybe sang over Eve. It doesn't sound super romantic to us. It might not make the chop 100 chart. Um, But here we have Adam, the husband, rejoicing over his wife. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And then we keep reading verse 24. This is why a man leaves his father and his mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. So we see right here in the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 2, that marriage is not a cultural construct. Marriage is not something that our culture decided we should have or is a good idea. But marriage is a creation of God. God created marriage. He ordained marriage. 
And he made it to be his beautiful relationship. Now, God goes on, and, and we see here in Genesis 1 this reality of the sexual activity that takes place within marriage. The two become one flesh. The word one here in Hebrew is the word ichad. And when you set this word ichad alongside the word flesh, it essentially means that these two people are fused together at the deepest level. When two people become one flesh, they are fused together at the deepest level. Uh, John Mark Comer says it this way, that ichad is when you are known, when you are known and are known. When you know and are known, sorry, that's a typo. When you make love to another person, you know them at the deepest levels. And to God, the only relationship strong enough to hold that kind of untamed, fierce power is marriage. That is the only container that can handle the nuclear force that we call love. Two people becoming one. That is what happens in sex. God also gave sex another function. If we turn back a chapter in in Genesis to to verse 28, uh, we see God giving the first commandment to humanity. What was that commandment? God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. So the first commandment given to humans is that they would make babies. So to summarize from Genesis chapter 1 and 2, sex is a good gift from God. It is designed for pleasure, for intimacy and reproduction, and is designed to be experienced exclusively within the context of marriage. Now, I say this and spend time here because I believe that in the church, in our passionate pursuit for holiness and for purity, we oftentimes present sex as simply bad and to be avoided, unless you're married. But to rightly understand the problem of lust, we first have to understand the beauty that is sex in the context of marriage. Now, with all the vices, uh, as we've been talking about all these different sins and vices, um, it's, it's amazing to see the way that we respond to the needs within us. As human beings, we were created for relationship. We were created for intimacy. We crave that intimacy, and that is a good thing that God put in us. But as, again, with all the vices, something goes awry when we start to chase down these deep needs in an ungodly way. A sermon I was listening to a few weeks ago, uh, Pastor Tyler Staten defined sin in this way. He said that sin is any attempt to meet my deep needs by my own resources. So think about all the vices we've talked about, whether it's gluttony or greed and now lust. There's these deep needs that are within us. This longing for intimacy, this longing for more, this longing for security, this longing uh, to be filled and have these needs met. Those needs in and of themselves are not a bad thing. But the vices come in when we attempt to meet these deep needs by our own resources. And we live in a world right now that is screaming at us and telling us that we can do whatever we want to meet our deep need for intimacy and for pleasure however we want to meet it. Which is how we land at the vice of lust. So lust is taking the good and beautiful parts of sex and seeking to experience them contrary to their design or their boundaries. So in an attempt for pleasure, in an attempt to experience intimacy, lust is trying to sell us a quick fix to some longing that is inside of us. Be it lusting through fantasy, 
be it lusting through looking at some sort of visual um, aid and using a visual experience, or be it lusting through actual activity in every activity there. Each attempt is to meet something, a deep need that is inside of us. Paul had to address the outworking of lust in the church in Corinth. And if you'd like to turn your Bible to 1 Corinthians now, uh, chapter 6, which Tim read for us earlier. And having already dealt with the issue, uh, some sexual issues within the church in Corinth, Paul now turns to, re- to talk to the church in general about sex and sexuality. Here in chapter 6, he addresses the ways in which the culture of Corinth itself and the sexual practices of Corinth itself had now been influencing the, the church that was in Corinth. You see, the city of Corinth in and of itself was infamous for its unrestrained sexual engagement. Corinth was a major port city. When people traveled to, to Corinth, the whole idea was, well, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. In Corinth, you, you, were, you were encouraged and welcomed to have sex with whomever you wanted to and to give yourself to whatever you desired to give yourself to, to experience whatever you wanted to experience. And as I say this, I ask, does this not sound a little bit familiar? When I think about Paul's writing to Corinth some 2,000 years ago, our cultural context I don't think has changed all that much. With the sexual revolution that started in the 60s and all that has followed, our culture is looking a whole lot more like first century Corinth than maybe it used to. And so what Paul is doing here in this passage is he's addressing um, a couple of expressions that were being said in the context of Corinth. And these expressions were around sexual liberation. And I think, again, they'll sound familiar to us and we can see in each one how Paul responds to them. So I want to look at two of these expressions and get um, two different principles Uh, about lust kind of as umbrella principles to to guide our thinking this morning. The first big principle is the idea that making room for lust leads to bondage. Making room for lust leads to bondage. Paul addresses this first expression, I have the right to do anything. Chapter 6 verse 12, I have the right to do anything. This is what was being said in Corinth. This is and what was beginning to be said in the context of the church. So this is this idea that I can or should do whatever feels right to me. Our culture would call this concept sexual freedom. If it feels good, do it. As long as you're not hurting anybody, of course. Our culture would say that to not, inda- to not indulge your lust, to not give in to your lust is actually repressive. It's bad for you if you don't give in to your lust. You need to give in to your lust. Late philosopher William Gass calls lust merely the sexual impulse dialed up. So what's the harm of lust? Satisfied lust just leads to two people that are happy. So why squelch natural desire for pleasure? This is our culture's narrative around lust. If it feels good, do it. If you, keep yourself from do, from, if you keep yourself from doing what feels good, that's repressive. That's bad. And people believe that to have restraints around sexual expression is actually a form of bondage. And who wants that in their lives? Well, how does Paul respond to this expression? Paul says this. It actually, he, Paul responds with the concept that it will lead to bondage. When he says, I will not be mastered by anything. I will not be mastered by anything. While our society attributes sexual liberation to living in freedom to our own will and pleasure, 
Scripture teaches that submitting thoughtlessly to physical impulse is just another form of slavery. Think about it. If you're giving in to all your physical, your, all your physical longings and cravings, you're just a slave to your flesh. If with every impulse comes an activity, oh, I feel like this, so I'm going to do it. I feel like this, I'm going to do it. You're just a slave. You're a slave to your own impulses. And you get to the point where you can no longer say no. You can't stop yourself. You can't help yourself. You have to look at that image. You have to engage in that conversation. You have to engage in that activity. You cannot stop. See, with sexual addiction, we train our brains to seek neurological highs through sexual experiences. And the more we do it, the more our brain wants it. The more our brain wants it, the more difficult it is to say no. A huge problem in our day and age due to its increased accessibility is, of course, pornography addictions. And you talk about sexual freedom or or liberation. It's like, of course, go look at those images. Use them however you want. It's not a big deal. Nobody is getting hurt. That couldn't be further from the truth. Viewing porn has been proven to be addictive. It's been proven to be marriage-destroying. It's been proven to normalize sexual objectification. Viewing pornography has been proven to increase stress in people's lives and contribute to or cause mental health issues. Viewing pornography has been proven to fuel loneliness. So, if your mentality is to do whatever you want sexually as long as nobody gets hurt, you need to consider if you're okay being the one that you're hurting. Sexual addiction ruins lives. The pleasure that comes from allowing lust to run its course is only temporary, but the long-term consequences are destructive to you, your relationships, and the people you love the most. One more comment on this, this whole statement of all things are lawful, or this idea of just indulging in whatever you feel. I think our culture naturally expects that all people can and should engage in this activity. In the church, I think we also mistakenly promote a similar idea as we hold such a high view of marriage. Now, hear me out here for a second. I don't believe in the church that marriage should be a higher status or a greater calling uh, than singleness. If we look one chapter later in 1 Corinthians chapter, um, in, in 1 Corinthians to chapter 7, we see Paul commending singleness and celibacy as a high calling from God. And something that we do not encourage our young people to do because we promote marriage so much is to ask the question. If you're not married, ask the God the question, God, is singleness what you have for me? Is singleness what you are calling me to? Friends, singleness in the church is not second class. It's not second class and it shouldn't be. And my prayer for our church here at TCC is that this is a community where those of you who are single feel part of the family, who feel like you belong. And who, who experience a community in such a powerful way that the, a life of celibacy is realistic for you because you experience being known and knowing others in an intimate way in the context of this fellowship. That is my prayer for our church. That we so love one another that that longing for fellowship is met and addressed. Jesus was single. Paul was single. So the idea that everything is permissible and that eventually everyone should have these experiences, it's repressive not to, is a lie. There's a possibility of a life of of celibacy in the context of singleness. 
So that was the first expression. The second expression, I believe, gives us this principle. Making room for lust leads to the objectification of others. Making room for lust leads to the objectification of others. Paul goes on that people say, um, sorry, I lost my spot here. Um, Food is for the stomach and the stomach for food. Food is for the stomach and the stomach is for, for food and God will destroy them both. So here's this idea that, well, my body is made for pleasure. My body is made for these experiences. So what's the big deal if I just give in to lust? Isn't that what my body is made for? And the way that my stomach is made for food, like why should I restrain myself in consuming whatever food I want? You can think back to our gluttony message. So this is the idea that, well, the body's just made for this, so just let it do what it's made to do. But remember Ikad? If Ikad, this idea of oneness that is caused by sex, being fused to the other person at the most deepest and personal level, the coming together of bodies as a vehicle for intimacy. Scripture teaches that sex is way more than just biological. That it is the bringing together of two peoples. Its effect extends beyond physical experience or pleasure, but influences our person at every level. When you have sexual relations with another person, you are, you are coming together with them, spirit, soul, and body. That is a connection that is profoundly more than just two bodies coming together or adults just having fun. Rebecca DeYoung in her book Glittering Vices makes a comment about this, that with a biblical understanding of the body and sex, the physical dimension of sex becomes the lowest denominator. Where our culture might say that's just what it's all about. The Bible teaches that that's just like a part of it. There's so much more going on in sexual relationships. So while promoting self-pleasure through sexual activity Um, Our culture has nothing to say about what sexual desire and its expressions look like when it's bathed in love, and bathed in love's familiarity, warmth, vulnerability, and intimacy. And when sex is bathed in love's familiarity, warmth, vulnerability, and intimacy, we see in sex its, its goodness, its beauty. Timothy Keller has a famous quote around lust and love, and he says that lust says what can you do for me? Love says, what can I do for you? When we allow lust to motivate our sexual experiences, I think what ends up happening is we are not asking someone what we can do for them. We're asking, what can they do for me? We eventually come to see the other person as an object. Ken Nightman says that with lust, the pleasure we get comes at the expense of other people. We take from someone that which doesn't belong to us. So when we engage in the vice of lust, we see people as less than what God created them to be. And this is not only a sad reality, but it is potentially incredibly harmful. Again, to kind of pick on the issue of pornography, we see the harm so clearly when we look at the porn industry. The third most common form of, um, the porn industry is the third most common form of sex trafficking. And many performers enter the industry out of financial desperation, substance addictions, or or a coercion. And there is no way of knowing that if the actors in porn are there by their own consent or if they're being forced to be there. There's a lot of information about this online. Uh, Some people would say, well, the actors, they're just 
they want to be there. They're doing this of their own free will. The statistics would say that that is far from the majority. And that for those of you who are viewing, um, who are viewing pornographic images, it's likely that you're viewing people who are there against their wills. Those people on the screen are then reduced to being less than people. They become objects set up and put in front of a camera for other people's pleasure. And friends, it just should not be that way. It should not be that way. Paul says that the body is not meant for sexual immorality. It is not meant to be handed over to lust's demands. The body is meant for the Lord. Our bodies are members of Christ. In this sense, we are not our own. Your spouse's body is not their own. They belong to the Lord. So you see, lust leaves human beings empty and yet driven to excess in their search for sexual satisfaction. We are attempting to find ultimate satisfaction in a way our bodies were actually never designed to. Sex was designed as a means to intimacy. Engaging in sex without fostering true intimacy with another will always leave you wanting more. It is ignoring the holistic realities of sex. So Paul wrote to Corinth and addressed these issues. And there's so much more that I could say and unpack. But just in these few verses, we see that lust is incredibly dangerous and destructive. Lust lust is that it demands we bypass God in our pursuit of pleasure or comfort. And in the process, we end up enslaved to our own desires and constantly tempted to see others as less than people. So how does all of this resonate with you? Have you felt the slavery in your own life? Unable to say no? Preoccupied in thought? Feeling constantly tempted to action or, be, or a behavior you know isn't right? Or maybe this morning you're sitting here and listening and you yourself has been the victim of another person who's given themselves over to lust. Maybe you've experienced the destructive outworking of lust in the context of your own life or home. Friends, however we take in this message this morning, the good news of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ meets us where we are at. For those of you who are struggling, in Christ we find grace and forgiveness and redemption We have an invitation from him to his continued work in our lives to become a new creation. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're invited to receive comfort and satisfaction in God. The hunger and the thirst in our souls can be met in Christ Jesus. And not only that, but Jesus sends us his spirit. And by the indwelling power of his spirit, he enables us to say no to lust and yes to the way of Jesus. So friends, like all of the vices, we need to learn to say no. We need to learn to say no. So what are some practices that we can engage in to help us guard our hearts against the vice of lust? What are some practices that we can engage in? Well, I think that at, at this point, as I, we kind of journey week by week through the vices, I want to say that there's like a junk drawer of practices that we can go to every single time. We talk about practices of of being in Scripture, spending time in prayer before the Lord, the the practice of silence and solitude. 
All as a context and a means for us to experience the presence of Jesus in our lives. To bring to him the desires that we have. To bring to him the struggles. To bring to him the pain, the longings. And we bring all of that before the Lord as we sit with him in in scripture, in prayer, in silence, in solitude. And of course, uh, the other practice of fasting. As we learn to say no to our flesh, as we commit ourselves to prayer. So if you're struggling with the vice of lust, please uh, continue in practices of silence and solitude, prayer, and fasting. Um, So I'd say that as kind of a first. The second I want to point to is right here in our text uh, to use, um, yeah, right here in our text. In verse 18, Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. And to this I say, run for your life. Run for your life from the vice of lust. The practice of confession and repentance. Here Paul is calling us to a very simple activity. Turn around and run in the other direction. Do everything that you can to avoid the power of lust working itself out in your life. Run for your life. In the words of Jesus, if your right hand causes you to sin, what do you do? You cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, what do you do? Gouge it out. Do everything that you can. Of course, he's speaking hyperbolically, um, but do everything that you can to get away from sexual sin and sexual immorality because it's powerful. Because it will enslave you. Because it will make you less and not more. And we do that. We begin to do that through the, the, the practices of confession and repentance. Confession is coming before the Lord and admitting your weakness. Admitting what you've done wrong. Confession is, is, is King David in Psalm 51. Where he cries out to God that he would create in him a, a clean heart. And renew a steadfast spirit in him. Where he acknowledges his sin before the Lord. Repentance is making up your mind to to turn the other direction. Repentance is recognizing sin for what it is. Recognizing the hold that it has in your life and saying, no, I'm going to live a different way. I'm going to say no to sin and yes to Jesus. Repentance is not a moment in time. Repentance is every time you choose Jesus over sin. And you might have to repent 150, 300 times a day every time that thought comes in your mind when you choose to say no to that thought and yes to Jesus. That is repentance. And as believers in Jesus, that's how we live. We live in a posture of repentance. We run for our lives. I just have a quick word to parents. Um, This idea of running for your life. Your children need your help to run for their lives. They can't do it on their own. Children can access pornography so easily. And you think about the power of lust and sexual bondage that can happen in a moment. Sorry. Do not assume that lust is not an issue for your children. Be mindful of the time that they spend on their devices. Take their device and smash it with a hammer if you have to. Every filter that you put on there could be worked around, but have these conversations with your children. Do not assume. And don't be scared to have these conversations. The church has done a really bad job talking about these things. 
And we need to talk about these things together in order to live uh, in healing and freedom from these sins. But parents, your children need their help, your help to run, from their li- run for their lives from the, the clutch of lust. Another practice for us is to consider what is informing your understanding about sex and sexuality. I don't think that we can fully realize the effect that television and movies have on us as it shapes our understanding of sex. We witness passionate scenes um, painted with pure bliss of, of lovers falling into bed and waking up with giant smiles on their face. And we forget that these are actors. A doctor friend of mine um, was telling me that in her practice, she spends a lot of time consoling adult patients who are dealing with sexually transmitted infections. She's consoling them because they did not realize that they can't just live their lives like the people they see on TV and not suffer consequences. And she made a comment that when their lives, when their sexual practices are informed by by television, it has terrible, terrible consequences, just simply from a medical perspective. So as you're watching TV or movies this week, ask the question, what did this show just teach me about sex? What is this television show? What is this movie? What is this thing? What is it informing me or my kids, my family about sex and sexuality? Is it consistent with God's word or is it a separate message? We need to audit these things as they come into our minds. Martin Luther famously said that you cannot keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. And so when we come up against this messaging about sex and sexuality, it's, it's like birds flying over our head trying to invite us to see the world in a different way, to see sex in a different way. But we need to see it the way that God sees it. We need to understand it the way that God understands it. And so while we can't keep the messaging from coming, we can keep it uh, from taking over our minds. The next practice I have for us is the practice of community and fellowship. The practice of community and fellowship. Rebecca DeYoung says this in Glittering Vices, that lust thrives in privacy and isolation. Lustful people often feel shame, which also motivates them to keep their struggles hidden from others. But when we hide our hearts, we cannot come to grips with the darkness within or, or expose it to the light in confession. This means lust's remedy requires community, openness, and accountability. I absolutely love uh, this quote. Friends, we need one another. For those of you who are struggling with lust and the effects of it, you need another person to come alongside you. In the language of James chapter 5 verse 16, confess your sins to one another and you will be healed. Again, confession isn't some sort of uh, magical token or, or thing where, oh, okay, I confessed, now I'm free. I think it's the outworking of that confession as we walk in the context of community Uh, constantly leaning on one another, we find healing. Now, I think there are probably two groups of us here uh, this morning. Some of you who are in the middle of struggling uh, with lust in significant ways, and you need help. If you need help with this and and you need to talk with someone, you might need professional help. That's okay. Reach out and seek that. Uh, Reach out to, to myself or Pastor Norb or Pastor Quinn we would be happy to, to talk with you, to pray with you, and maybe get you in touch uh, with the right help that you need. And that is okay to do that. 
But there's others of you maybe this morning who don't actually struggle with this issue all that much. But my encouragement to you is to consider how you might prayerfully partner with others. How you might be a voice of encouragement or a voice of accountability with others in the church to help them find freedom from the grip of lust. My final application for us this morning is to cultivate a greater affection. Cultivate a greater affection. Uh, Pastor Norb quoted this in his prayer time that that, um, the chief end of man is to, to... to glorify God forever. We were made for man. In the, in the words of Augustine, um, that, that God has made us for himself and our hearts are restless until we rest in him. Friends, a great way to battle lust and its grip is to have a greater affection for Jesus than for the images or the experiences that we're seeking uh, through lust. Dallas Willard says that intimacy is a spiritual hunger of the human soul. We cannot escape it. This has always been true and remains true today. We now keep hammering the sex button in the hope that a little intimacy might finally dribble out. But friends, as I've already said, it will always leave us wanting more. It will always leave us wanting more. We were made for God. We were made for relationship with Him. He knows how we were designed. He knows how we're to get the most out of life. We need to cultivate a greater affection for Jesus. Turning to him, bringing him our every longing. Sitting with Christ in silence and solitude. Turning our eyes towards him, seeking his face. Desiring to to experience his presence and the joy and the peace that comes as we sit with him. And as we grow that greater affection, I truly believe that it will help us to say no to lust and yes to Jesus. Well, this morning we turn our attention to communion, which is an opportunity to remember what Christ has done for us in his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. Thomas Aquinas saw lust as a sin of weakness, not a sin of malice. And I appreciated that. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that Jesus is one who is able to sympathize with us in our weakness. We're told that Jesus also suffered the pains of temptation. That Jesus suffered the pains of temptation, yet he did not sin. But what Jesus did do, however, was subject himself to the ultimate consequence and pain that resulted from sin. Taking our place, taking our punishment when he died on the cross. I'm going to invite the worship team to join me on the platform So I want to give us an opportunity. We've been talking a lot about sin the past several weeks. As we've talked about gluttony and anger. Talked about greed and envy and now lust. Friends, Jesus sympathizes with us in our weakness. So as you reflect, maybe it's on the message this morning. Maybe there's some things that come to mind where you're like, man, yeah, I feel weak. But maybe it's something from one of the messages um, in, in the past weeks. And as you reflect upon these vices and their outworking in your life, you think, man, I feel weak. Jesus is with you in your weakness. He is with you in your weakness.